Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much.
morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming and welcome to New York Insight. My name is Vivian. I'm the event manager and a staff at here. And today we have um, Peace, our managing uh, uh, manager of programming, as well as our two volunteers, Renata and David. So if you have any questions, feel free to ask them any about anything. Um, and let's see, some points about the space here. Please make sure you turn off your cell phone and keep it silent throughout the day. Um, the bathrooms are across where the sink is. To the left is the all-gender bathroom, and to the right is the women's bathroom. Um, we also have a water filter next to the trash cans. And um, about recycling, we have a black bin for trash and then a blue bin for recycling. And if you take a look at the diagram, you'll see what can or cannot be recycled. So um, I ask that you be, mi be mindful of um, where you put your trash. Um, another thing is that our lunch break will be around 12.30, um, and it will be around one hour long. Um, so with that, I am very happy that Oren is here with us today. Thank you so much for coming and spending your day with us. Um, he has practiced meditation in a Theravada Buddhist tradition since 1997 and is a long-term, long-time student of Joseph Goldstein, Nichelle McDonald, and Venerable, Venerable Ajahn Suchito. He holds a degree in comparative religion for, from Columbia University, is a somatic experiencing practitioner for healing trauma, and a graduate of the IMS Spirit Rock Teacher Training Program. And his work and teaching brings a strong emphasis to living the life, living the path of awakening in our daily lives. So with that, I'd like to Get started with Oren. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Vivian. <clears throat> well, good morning. Welcome to each of you. Thanks for taking time out of your life to come here and practice together on the on this early spring Sunday. Hmm. How many people are um, uh, new to New York Insight? Anyone here for the first time? Great, okay. And uh, any, anyone newer to meditation? It's like maybe your first few months or first year of meditating. Okay, great, great. Why don't we start um, just sitting together for a little bit kind of arriving and settling in. So finding your posture. And tuning into that balance of feeling stable upright and relaxed, relaxed and comfortable. Inclining your attention towards kindness 
So from the very beginning, just bringing in that spirit of warmth or friendship with yourself and your experience. Meditation practice is about having a wise relationship with ourselves and our experience. And this attitude of kindness or warmth is an essential support for developing wisdom. Feeling the contact with the chair, the cushion or the bench. And seeing if you can let your attention really connect with the steadiness of that contact. Just firm, grounded, stable. Very simple and direct, just feeling your bottom on the chair or the cushion. There's no need to focus and try hard to feel something. It's just very simple, just that sense of relaxing and feeling the weight of the body on the chair or the cushion. Almost like there could be a deep sigh or out breath of ease. Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Nothing to get or have. Just setting up this tone of easy presence. Through the physical sensations of sitting. As you sit, you might notice that the body's breathing.
Just letting that be there. Maybe checking to see if there's any tension in the face, around the eyes, or the eyebrows. The jaw or the mouth. Seeing if you can let the whole face soften and relax. Maybe bringing your attention to your shoulders. there's any tension there that wants to release or soften just by bringing awareness there. Scanning your attention down through the arms, into the hands, front of the body, chest, solar plexus, abdomen, down the back, just feeling any sensations, noticing those areas or regions of the body, touching into the pelvis and down through the legs, the knees, the calves, into the feet. And once again, feeling the whole body sitting. Letting the body breathe. Like you were watching an animal in the wild. And you allowed your whole body to become very still so that you wouldn't frighten it away. relating to the breath in that way.
not trying to control it or bear down on it, just bearing witness to it, observing it, feeling it. And seeing how this strange creature behaves, rising up, swelling, softening and loosening, loosening, sinking down. Noticing that your mind has wandered is a sign that mindfulness is strengthening. Noticing that your mind has wandered is a sign that mindfulness is strengthening. See if you can let yourself take that in. So waking up from a daydream is a good thing. It means we're waking up.
noticing how you're meditating. Is the mind frustrated, anxious, tight? Is it relaxed, easeful, kind? Seeing if you can bring some warmth and spaciousness to your experience of sitting, feeling the breath, noticing sounds and thoughts. Just hanging out, just taking it easy. Just breathing in and breathing out, just letting the body breathe. Thoughts and emotions will come and go. Just see if you can keep coming back to feeling the body sitting, just that simplicity and steadiness of the sensations. and feeling the body breathing. If things get tight, contracted, or difficult with the breath, just let that go. Bring your awareness to hearing. Just noticing sounds come and go.
as our meditation comes to a close, just invite you to appreciate the effort, the energy of practicing. Whatever your experience is, seeing if there can be that sense of acknowledgement that you're making an effort, showing up. That's not easy and it's worth appreciating. So welcome again. So meditation practice can get uh, can get intense sometimes can feel like we're really, uh, really struggling or uh, having a hard time. And uh, it's, meant to, it's meant to be enjoyable. That doesn't mean it's always pleasant. But the process of meditating, the process of being aware can actually be enjoyable. Part of, part of what makes that possible is the fact that in, in, the, in the presentation of the, the path and the teachings that, med, that Buddhist meditation comes from, uh, the meditation practice itself is one component 
of, of a whole kind of a matrix of different aspects. And when we, when we pluck the meditation practice out of that uh, configuration and just focus on that, it's really easy for things to get misaligned. It's like, uh, it's kind of a crude analogy, but you could say it's, you know, it's like going into a gym and trying to, to um, do, uh, do a certain exercise with a heavy weight without having done any stretching or received any instruction on the proper alignment for that particular uh, exercise. So you need, you need a certain kind of a preparation and certain kinds of supports to do the exercise properly and actually get benefit from it. So it's the same with meditation. So our, our theme for the day is this aspect of the teachings of the Buddha that are called the gradual training, which is um, uh, a progression that shows up in the early texts many times. That's kind of the, what the Buddha, uh, how the Buddha laid out the path, saying, here's, here's how this thing goes, here's how it develops. I think different different people come to meditation for different reasons. We each find this practice um, in a different way and because we're looking for something different. Um, for some people, it's just some sense of uh, slowing down, slowing down the busyness of our mind or our life, um, feeling less stressed out. Maybe, uh, maybe feeling happy, and then just investigating some sense of what's it, what is it to actually be uh, more happy, wanting to be happier in our lives. Uh, for some, it might be just curiosity, just wanting to understand um, our mind more, or have some insight into being alive, being human. Also, all all different reasons. One of the uh, one of the subtleties, I think, of meditation practice is that the process of meditating includes whatever it is you're looking for in the end. So, if you're hoping to be less stressed, and you meditate in a really stressful way. Not so likely that you're going to end up feeling less stressed out. If you're looking to feel more and understand more happiness in your life, and you meditate, and you don't receive instructions on how to experience some happiness in your meditation, that's going to be very difficult to have some happiness. Uh, so the, the process determines the end. How we go about meditating affects, you know, what, what kind of results we get. 
So this is, um, oftentimes we think, you know, well, this is going to make me fill in the blank, happier, kinder, more relaxed, uh, more together, <laughs> less stressed. Um, so it's a path to whatever that thing is you're looking for, right? But in order for in order for uh, in order for that to come about, the path itself needs to be imbued with that quality. So, to take the the title of this day, it's a path of happiness, not just a path to happiness. But the path itself actually has a quality of happiness, and this is what I was trying to highlight a little bit in the guided meditation we did: is that sense of starting from a place of ease in the meditation. So starting from a sense of like, ah, this is what it's like to just sit here and hang out, not need to figure anything out or accomplish something or get it right. All those kinds of energies we bring to the meditation practice. How is that? Can we just find that as a base to begin from? Or the sense of appreciation it's like, hey, I'm trying, <laughs> you know, I'm showing up here. It's not easy to sit still and, you know, not look at the phone and not read the paper or eat something or talk to someone or look out the window or all the different things we get involved with. It's not easy to just be with one's own mind, but I'm making an effort. Regardless of the results, can we take joy in the fact that, hey, I'm doing it, you know? I'm giving it my best. There, there can be a joyful quality in that, a sense of appreciation. So how we practice is very important. How we practice. And the gradual training is a is um is it's like a little instruction booklet for all the different things that help support our meditation practice so that we're we're practicing properly so that we're practicing in a way that's going to be of most benefit and as i was saying it's a, it's a it's a configuration it's a whole it's a whole constellation of different aspects working together. Whenever you look at uh, the Buddha's teachings, they're always presented in that way, whether it's the gradual training or the eightfold path or the five spiritual faculties or the seven factors of the awakening. There are all these different factors working together, right? It's not just be mindful, pay attention. No, you need kindness, you need wisdom, you need confidence, you need energy, you need stability, and you need mindfulness. We need all of those together. So, how do the, so this is what we'll be exploring today, is what, what are some of those aspects that are presented in this teaching on the gradual training, and how do they work together? One of the most important aspects to understand about how they work together is... Um, Is, is, we could say, the pace, the pace of it. Actually, would you do me a small favor, Vivian? I left something in my, um, I have a little blue knapsack 
I wanted to read something. Could you bring that bag? It's a little heavy, but... Uh, so how, how they work together, the pace. And the, um, the title of, of the, the, this particular teaching indicates something. It's a gradual training. It's a gradual training. So this is one quote from the early texts that shows up in a few places. The Buddha says, Just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, and there's no sudden precipice. Or it only drops off suddenly after a long stretch. In the same way, this teaching, thank you, this teaching has a gradual training, a gradual progression, and a gradual practice with penetration to insight only after a long stretch. So there's that sense of a, of a gradual cultivation, something building up over time. And it's a, it's a natural process. So if you plant a seed in the ground, you don't expect a tree to sprout up overnight, right? First you just get a little tiny sapling and it grows up slowly it becomes a tree over many years. So our practice is the same. It's a natural process that develops slowly. And this runs counter to like everything in our culture, right? Which is, give it to me now, you know? Like the number of milliseconds it takes for a web page to load. And if it's just like two milliseconds longer, we feel impatient. So this is, uh, this is another, another version of, uh, of this aspect of how the teachings and the practices that we'll be exploring today, how they, how they build up slowly over time. And having this understanding is important. If we don't have this understanding, we come to our meditation practice with this expectation that's like, all right, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to feel calm. I'm going to feel happy. I'm going to get relaxed. I'm not going to stress out. <laughs> you know, I'm exaggerating it, right? But we can have that kind of give it to me, get it now energy. But that's, that's, that runs counter to this practice. So it's much more of that seed growing. It's like you just give it a little water every day. And you just make sure that no animals come and trample it or eat it up. And then you let it do its thing. And that's, that's nice, right? It's not that you're sitting there staring at the plant going, come on, you can do it, keep growing, come on. No, you just give it what it needs and let it be. You protect it, make sure it's safe, and let it grow. So this is from another passage in the texts. The Buddha says, true knowledge and liberation have have uh, have nutriment means they have a source they have something they depend on they're not without nutriment what's the nutriment for true knowledge and liberation and then he goes through a whole list of factors each depending on the next that support this final awakening and liberation the seven factors of enlightenment which depend on the four foundations of mindfulness which depend on our virtuous conduct, 
Virtuous conduct depends upon having a wise relationship with our senses, our sense faculties. That depends on mindfulness and clear comprehension, which depends on careful attention. Careful attention has something it depends on. It depends upon hearing the teachings. Hearing the teachings depends on something. Hearing the teachings depends on associating with good people. So how do all these work together? This is what he says. Just as when it is raining and the rain pours down in thick drops on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the clefts, gullies, and creeks. These becoming full fill up the pools. The pools becoming full fill up the lakes. The lakes fill up the streams. The streams fill up the rivers, and the rivers becoming full fill up the great ocean. Thus there is nutriment for the great ocean, and in this way it too becomes full. So too spending time with good people becomes full. That becoming full, one hears the Dhamma, and so on through the whole list up to full liberation. So that image of just these raindrops filling the gullies and the clefts and the mountains and that filling up the pools and the streams into the lakes, into the rivers. So you can see all of these different aspects connected, working together and filling up slowly over time. One of the things that I love about um, this particular teaching is that what was the beginning, the first factor of true knowledge and liberation in that whole chain? Spending time with good people, right? It's not, you know, go find a, a guru and a saint and, uh, you know, spend 20 years at their feet. It's spend time with good people. You know, look at who you spend time with in your life and from that, we come into contact with the teachings, we start to practice, we learn more, we develop, we grow, and so forth. So the gradual training, what is the gradual training? Uh, there's a range of different practices. We'll explore um, a number of them. We won't explore all of them. Um, but they can be understood in two different categories. Some of them are about letting go, and some of them are about seeing clearly. So all the different things we talk about will fall into one of those two categories together to, uh, to today, either a letting go or a, an aspect of seeing clearly. So the basic progression is that one hears the teachings, we come in contact with this path, we start practicing. As we practice, part of, part of that practice is living ethically, is not causing harm to oneself or others. We pay attention to what we do with our senses, cultivate some restraint around sight, sound, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking.
We develop mindfulness and clear comprehension. We let go, we develop a sense of contentment inside, putting down the hindrances and cultivating insight. So this is the progression. Hearing the teachings and beginning practicing is about is a clear seeing. Ethical conduct, restraint of the sense faculties is a letting go. Mindfulness and clear comprehension is about clear seeing. Contentment is a letting go. Abandoning the hindrances, a letting go. Insight practice, clear seeing. So this is the progression that we'll be exploring, uh, exploring today. <clears throat> so be before I before I go on, um, <clears throat> I just want to see if there's any any questions or comments on uh, anything I've shared so far. I've been talking for a little while. And there don't have to be, but I just want to. I just want to leave some space and see. Yeah, and remind me of your name. Ellen. Um, the the um, surrounding yourself with good people. You know, there's there's a sort of an implied judgment there. Mm-hmm. About in, in my heart, I know I'm in a room full of good people right mm -hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat it. Yeah, you're holding it a little bit further. She was just saying that um, is there some implicit judgment in in surrounding oneself with good people, and uh, how do you know? Yeah. So, so great question. Thank you. So, a few things. So, one is the um, the teaching is not surrounding oneself with good people, which sounds like we need to keep keep certain people away from us. It's associating with good people. So it's spending time with good people. So it just means that you make sure that somewhere in your life you're spending time with certain, with certain kinds of people. Does that make sense first? You, it doesn't make sense. It, it makes sense. Just in, in, in the back. Hold on. I, I'm only answering half of your question. I haven't answered the other half. But uh, do you have a question about that? The difference between surrounding oneself versus spending time with? Good people. I'm getting there. Oh, sorry. Yes, I said I just answered the first half of the question. So what are good people? That's, that's the other part of the question. Um, so good people is a translation. So it's translating the word kalyanamitta, which many of you are familiar with. And kalyanamitta um, is um, wise friends is another translation. Spiritual companions is another translation. So mita means friend. Kalyana uh, means beautiful, literally. Beautiful. So it means having friends in your life who embody things that are beautiful, qualities that are beautiful. Have a connection with truth and goodness and beauty and kindness, yeah. Um, so is that is that clearer? So it means spending time with people who bring out the good qualities in us, who reflect that back to us. 
Is that helpful also? Okay. Yeah. And, and your name? Dan. Hey, Dan. So the, the more I practice, the more I, I see good or wholesomeness or beauty in everybody that I meet. Absolutely. And so the distinction between, I don't know, it's like you, you, could, you could learn from everybody that you meet. Yeah, and absolutely. Is a, is a moment of a clearing from my list of... Yeah, rest. yeah, yeah. And that's, when I hear you say that, Dan, it's, for me that's like a reflection of the strength of your own practice, right? When we're deeply connected to our own practice, it's like there's a field of goodness that surrounds us. That's, that's flowing out of the wholesome qualities that we've cultivated and we, begin, we do begin to see that goodness in others. And um, is there a difference for, for you between being with somebody um, who's filled with bitterness and, and pettiness and being with somebody who's expressing gratitude and appreciation and contentment? has different energies, right? That doesn't mean that the person who's experiencing pettiness and resentment is a bad person. It, it, we, we take it out of the context of value judgment towards the person. It's the qualities that are, that are arising, that are being exhibited in, in a person at any given time. And that's, what, and that's what we're using to gauge, is like what qualities are called forth when I spend time with this person, you know? So if we find we spend time with somebody and it drains us and we end up engaging in activities that aren't supportive of clarity, you know, watching hours of TV or drinking or using drugs, it's like, is that the direction I want to go in? You know, we might still have a lot of love for that person, we might see a lot of goodness in them, but it's about what, what's the result, what qualities are strengthened when we're, when we're together. Yeah, so this, this is a kind of discernment in our lives. And if you reflect on what brought you to this path, whatever your relationship is with meditation practice, just why you're in this room, it's probably because of someone else. Even if you didn't meet them, a book that you read, a podcast you listened to, you know, so it's through our associations in life that we actually find this practice. And this is, this is the beginning of the gradual training, is that we actually come into contact with the teachings. We actually hear the Dhamma. So we, we, we learn that there's actually a path to follow in life that can bring more well-being and happiness. And we hear the teachings, we consider, we reflect, we develop some kind of uh, even provisional conviction to say, yeah, I'm going to check this out. So let's let's just do a little uh, let's do a little activity here. Uh,
first, first just a, a reflection. I invite you to reflect on the people in your life who have had an effect on your being here in this room today. So just cast your mind back and consider who's been a part of your coming to this practice. Teachers, friends, a book, Notice what it's like to remember those individuals, whether they're still in your life or not. Seeing how we're connected, even as we think we're separate or making decisions all by ourselves, how our relationships, the people we've known, the places we've been, are still informing our life today because they've had an effect. So when we hear the teachings, when we come into contact with this path, one of the things that happens is a reorientation, or at least the beginning of a reorientation in our life. In the teachings, this is talked about as gaining faith. That's the language that's used. And I'll talk about how we translate that what, that, what that means and the way I understand it. But gaining faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. But it's a reorientation. It's a, there's, there's some recognition that there's something of value about being alive more than the material world, more than the things we've been told make us happy. We see that things are constantly changing. 
that they're unreliable in some kind of essential way. That so, that the the things that bring kind of an ordinary happiness need to keep being renewed. We need to keep having experiences to feed a kind of regular happiness, that kind of pleasant feeling of happiness. But that instead there's something valuable that, that's deeper and we start to reorient towards that. And this is about, this is about taking refuge we see that actually we all take refuge. And a colleague of mine on the retreat we were just teaching was talking about this very beautifully, saying, you know, what do we take refuge in? We take refuge in food, in music. We take refuge in our device, in the internet, in entertainment. Do we take refuge in... Uh, beating ourselves up, believing that we're not good enough? Do we take refuge in work, being busy, having lists? Do we take refuge in cleaning, right? Do we take refuge in shopping? You know, whatever your thing is, we all take refuge in something. We take refuge in a relationship, being a caregiver, an identity, a role, a job, all of these things that we look to for stability, for identity, for a sense of meaning, for a place in the world. How reliable are they? How satisfying are they? So there's a reorientation. We start to recognize there's something that's not doing it for me there. And instead we realize that there's something else we can take refuge in, that we can take refuge in our own awareness, we can take refuge in qualities like kindness and generosity and patience and truthfulness and tolerance, that we can take refuge in the truth of things instead of take, trying to take refuge in controlling them or getting them, making them different, getting them to be our way, that actually having a wise relationship with things becomes a refuge. So this is this, this reorientation. So we come into contact with uh, people who exemplify the goodness of being human, we hear about the teachings, and then we take them in. We reflect on them. We, something reorients in our life. And we realize, maybe not even consciously at first, there's something else. There's something more for me about being alive. This is the arising of faith. The word in Pali is sadha, which, which means, it means more than faith in, in the... Um, uh, religious sense, it means trust, or confidence, or aspiration. The sense that there's something worthwhile about being alive more than just getting another happy experience. Something inside stirs, we go, oh, yeah, I know that. 
I know that deeply. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there is something profound and mysterious and beautiful about being here, and and I feel it. It's inside me. It's not something I have to go get. It's something I keep forgetting. How do I remember? That's the stirring of faith. And the, the beauty of the way the teachings arise, the beauty of the way this, this practice unfolds is that the, the nearest cause for the arising of faith for the stirring of this sense of curiosity and aspiration inside is suffering. It's our own challenges and difficulties that can lead to this, this stirring of faith inside when we come in contact with the teachings when we don't have the possibility of um, hearing, hearing the truth, and that doesn't just mean Buddhist teachings, it means a, a deep expression of the truth of being alive, which could be poetry, it could be art, it could be you know, teachings from another religious tradition, some reflection of the deep truth if we don't come in contact with that, then our suffering can go in the other direction. It can go towards feeling bewildered and lost and sinking, feeling broken. Kind of as this down spiral. But when the conditions are present, to actually look at it and go, wow, I'm really in a bad way. You know, what, what's going on here? then it can start to turn, it can start to go in another direction. So I thought what we could do is to, um, to maybe explore this, this aspect of the gradual training together a little bit in small groups. So the, the, the factors here are the people we come in contact with and what brings us to the path as we hear the teachings and we take them in. So we each have a story. How did you come to this practice? You know, what, what brought you to this? You know, for me, I was, uh, I was in my late teens. I was, I was here in New York City uh, in college and uh, it was a lot of suffering. My parents were getting divorced. I was doing a lot of drugs. I had lost a number of really close friends. Uh, and I was overwhelmed. I didn't, you know, I really felt like I just had lost my ground. And I had taken some courses at college on Asian religions, and I was fascinated by the teachings that I had read. And so I took a break from everything. I went to India and I studied. And it was that, it was, it was having that really difficult period. Had things been going better, I might not have started practicing because I wouldn't have had, there wouldn't have been the motivation, you know? Had I not taken that class, I might not have started practicing because I, I wouldn't have looked in that direction. So those conditions came together. 
So how did you come to this practice? What was the beginning for you of hearing these teachings, of gaining faith, the sense of um, aspiration, some trust, some sense, okay, I think there's something here at least worth exploring. One thing I want to say is that, and I'll hopefully repeat this throughout the day, if you go back to that analogy of the water, the raindrops on the mountaintop, filling the gullies and the creeks and the crannies, filling the pools and the streams and so forth, it's not like the rain falls once and then the ocean is full. Right? It needs to keep raining. Those gullies need to keep filling up. The streams need to keep filling up. So this gradual training, it's not like you go through step one and then you're done with that and then you go on to step two and then you do that and then sayonara step two, I'm on to step three. It's a continual process. It's, it's this configuration, all of these factors sitting together. So uh, spending time with wise friends, with good people, hearing the teachings, cultivating faith and trust in the practice. This is something that, that deepens and develops throughout the whole path. So it's not like, oh yeah, when I did that, this is, it's like, well, just what was, what brought you to it? And it continues, and it continues. So wherever you're at in that process, we're all in that process. It's all a continual development. So um, let's, uh, the invitation would be to form groups of three. We'll see, uh, there might be one group of two. Um, and we'll take uh, about 15 minutes. So maybe five minutes per person, and I'll, I'll ring a bell after each five minutes to just indicate if you haven't changed uh, that five minutes are up. So I invite you to find two other people uh, to partner with. And if you um, if you need if you need a, if you need a, a, a group, raise your hand. If you need one more person, or if there are four people and and you need, so we need one more person over here. Okay, great. And. So you guys could do four, or you could just do two twos, whatever. Or here's Vivian. Vivian, do you want to join a group? We've got this group of four could split into three and two. Yeah, please. So, so go ahead, just one person. Just introduce yourself, and anyone can start.
So just a suggestion to move on to the second person if you have a group of three.
So just a suggestion to move on to the third person when you're ready.
Great. Yeah, yeah, great. Wonderful. So if you'd like to keep talking in your group, feel, please feel free. What I'd like to suggest, if I could just have your attention for a moment, what I'd like to suggest is that we go from, from here into a break. So let's just take uh, about 10 minutes or so. Anyone needs to use the bathroom, stretch your legs, and uh, we'll come back a little after 11.40.
Not trying, not trying to. It's, just, it's a minor point because I mean, I respect this. It only occurred to me fairly recently. So if you want to start to make your way back,
Sure. You? Warren, nice to meet you. Um, this belongs to, yeah, New York's Insight, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty massive. Yeah. All right. So John and I were having a little conversation during the break about refuge. What is refuge? So I thought I'd just recap some of the some of the things we touched on. It's an interesting conversation for me. So I was suggesting that uh, that word refuge is. Uh, something, anything that we go to seeking uh, seeking a sense of safety and protection and comfort where we can rest. Like a refuge is a home. It's a place of shelter and safety, a place that we can rest and feel secure and at ease, right? So uh, the various activities and objects and experiences that we seek, that kind of safety, security, comfort, rest in and seeing their limitations and instead looking well what what can I rely on in those ways and that the Buddha Dhamma Sangha begins as something outside of ourselves that we we have this concept of awakening or the teachings or the truth of things or Sangha as community those who have practiced and awakened and that as we practice those refuges become internalized, become something within us, and that refuge is something that we find inside ourselves, so that the quality of wakefulness that the Buddha embodies and the other qualities of compassion and wisdom and patience, those become an aspect of our own heart. We see, we see that the Buddha is here, it's, it's within us as a potential. We see the Dharma not as something outside of ourselves, but at the very fabric of our being. That we are, you know, the laws of nature are here. They're not just out there, that it's what's animating our very mind and body. And that the Sangha becomes something, again, that's internalized. The very relationships that we have with our teachers, with our community, with, with the lineage, with those who have practiced, that we feel that strength and support within us. But it takes, it, it's a process. It takes, uh, it takes time, like that sapling growing, to internalize refuge. We actually have to um, reflect and practice and contemplate and develop a relationship with refuge. You have, to, you have to know where it is and how to find it. And ultimately, the Buddha said uh, his, one, his, his last words when he, was, when he was passing were, you know, be a refuge unto yourself, be a light in an island unto yourself. So that sense that the refuge is within us, it's not outside of us. And just wait for, the, wait for the microphone so that it's easier for everyone to hear you. What's your name? My name is Jane, 
And I have a question. It's a personal question, but I have a hunch that it might apply to me. Great, please. So when we were talking about refuges and you listed a bunch and they all seemed to make sense and one did belong like the old Sesame Street, which uh -huh. doesn't belong, and it was beating ourselves up uh -huh. as a refuge. Uh -huh. Because the others take comfort, TV, uh -huh, drugs, uh -huh. yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. But the beating ourselves up doesn't even feel good for the first second. It's uh -huh. not that it wears off or uh -huh. goes away. Uh -huh. And I notice that that is a refuge I take uh -huh. in life when I'm right. unconscious and even yeah. consciously in meditation. I'll sit there consciously <laughs> beating myself up. You know. Right, yeah, so yeah, yeah. How is that a refuge? How are we putting it in that Thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate the question. Yeah. We, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't think we, it would give us something, right? So, like I know for myself, what I see in that psychological refuge, the, the, the promise of refuge in that psychological pattern, what I've seen is that the belief underneath is that somehow... Either this will make me better and therefore I will be loved, accepted, belong, right? Or this will protect me from being criticized from the outside. Like if I do it first, then I don't have to worry about others doing it because I already know. And then again, I will be safe in some way. So it's, it's not logical, it's not rational, but I think that that's how the conditioning happens, that we, we believe in some way it's going to keep us safe or it's going to make us uh, lovable or acceptable because then I'll, I'll somehow be better if I can beat the heck out of myself. It's a, it's a strategy, I think, for, for love and belonging. Um, through self-improvement. It's like, I will be able to improve. And it's, yeah, it's a distortion. It's a distortion in the mind of, um, of discernment. Uh, Self-criticism is based initially on an aspect of discernment that's, va that's often valid. We see something clearly. It's like, oh, that's not so good. I'd like to change that. But then it gets laced with ill will and reactivity what's called the defilements, or these uh, aspects of the mind that uh, create suffering. The discernment gets um, o overpowered by the reactivity in the mind and, uh, and, and identification. So rather than it being, oh, this particular choice at that moment in time wasn't helpful, or this particular pattern that's present isn't helpful. It becomes a person. It becomes, I am this. We identify with that thing rather than just seeing, oh, that wasn't a helpful choice. It's not who I am, right? It's just a choice that was made or it's a pattern that's present. So starting to unravel that can be a, a, a there can be a lot of uh, insight and healing. Yeah. Yeah. And just seeing it in one moment is all that's required just to see initially to just see the pain of of it and to see the hope the yearning that we are looking for refuge on on one level you know there can be a quality of of, of a push or almost a desperation 
like if only I, and just to feel that quality and to see if we can widen inside. Has this ever brought me the kind of comfort or security I, I would long for? Is that helpful? Only a little bit. Some, some. some of it, uh huh. So there's a lot of bad choices. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bad choices, and then there's the self recrimination after mm -hmm. the bad choices. Mm -hmm. So lately I'm getting into the practice of at least stop the self recrimination. Great, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. So I find I'm enjoying the bad uh huh. So let's let's we'll look at this in the next segment actually, because this this is about our actions, which is the which is the next aspect of the gradual of the gradual path. Yeah. Uh, Hi, um, my name is Preeti. So. Um, as you were talking about what brought you into the practice in the first place, um, this was clearly you know, some kind of difficulty in your life and that provided the catalyst to go seek the path. And what I find for my own, um, in my own practice is that sometimes difficulties can be a great way to actually kind of strengthen and deepen the practice. Mm -hmm. But then when things are not so difficult anymore, mm -hmm. you know, I find that Sometimes it's harder to kind of bring the energy or inspiration to yes. really continue, and I almost find it counterintuitive. But it's it's almost more difficult to just find the motivation to keep it going. So yeah. I don't know if you could speak to absolutely. That. Yeah, yeah. Can anyone relate to what Priti's saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're seeing something uh, true in the mind, which is that, uh, yeah. Um, we like to coast, <laughs> you know, we don't want to bring forth the energy or the effort or the work there. I think there are two things that, um, that I see in myself that help with that. Um, so one is cultivating uh, uh, joy in practice, right? Because if, if we enjoy it, if, there's a, if, if we attend to the way in which practice nourishes something in us, then there's a natural desire to practice more. Does that make sense? So that's one whole aspect, and it's important to find ways for yourself to appreciate your practice, to really taste the benefits of it, you know, and explore that in yourself as you meditate or as you cultivate good qualities in your life or as you keep the precepts or various aspects of practice to not just keep the precepts, which we'll talk about in a moment, but to appreciate our virtues, to appreciate the, the non-harming that's present. And then that gathers strength and momentum. So that's one whole area that's a really, really key, important part of the path. The other area is... Um, sobering our ourselves by reflecting on old age sickness and death it's like uh, it's like a vaccine against complacency to reflect and the buddha recommended reflecting on death every day 
every day to remind ourselves this is my fate you know I, I will I will I will die this body this life will leave me everyone I know will die I will get sick I will grow old this body will be feeble and weak and in pain as a guarantee so how will I be when that comes how am I using my time how am I using my energy? That creates motivation and fuel for practice. So those are two. And, and we need both. We need both of those. They balance each other. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, please. Hi everyone, uh, thank you. Um, my name is Nina and I just want to ask towards this question, what's, what is the difference and if it matters uh, between motivation and consistency? Because uh, uh, consistency is a pitfall, psychological pitfall, and uh, I push myself to motivate sometimes. You because push yourself to meditate sometimes? Yeah, uh -huh. uh, but the other time it's motivation that yes I need to go to meditate yes I love it I'm in love with meditation um, yeah that's my question that's my let question. me see if I'm understanding um, is the question why is it important to no, uh, uh, does it matter if you uh, have motivation to meditate uh, or, if you just uh, do it even when you're not motivated if you just yes. build up consistency which right. is psychological illusionary pitfall Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, um, one of the great meditation masters of the last century, Ajahn Chah, uh, is quoted as having said, when you want to meditate, meditate. When you don't want to meditate, meditate. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I would agree that in general, um, having consistency and meditating on a regular basis even when we don't want to is better that that consistency helps to train the mind and cultivate various wholesome qualities and none of us want to meditate all the time you know because difficult things come up it's not it's not pleasant and we don't like unpleasant that's the definition of unpleasant we don't like it so in general yes i do think it's beneficial are you with me? Okay. However, what you want to watch out for is when we don't want to meditate and um, we're doing it anyway. We're, we're, you could say, pushing yourself or forcing yourself to do it. Um, pay attention to how you're meditating. You don't want to get into a situation where in the meditation yourself, in the meditation itself, you're, there's an aspect of force and, and, and pushing. That energy in the mind, in the actual meditation, will be counterproductive. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, the meditation is effortless. Uh, the technique is uh, 
almost 97% perfect, but it's not about that. Uh, I'll just give an example. Uh, instead of meditation, I would rather go to Korean barbecue in the middle of the night. Just if speak a little bit more slowly for me. Um, so the, the example, um, I know that meditation is scheduled. The day is over, Okay. Can go and meditate. It's midnight or 1 a.m., just a long day. Instead of that, I want to go for green barbecue. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is also refers to beating yourself. You can uh -huh. beat yourself. Right, yeah. Put yourself on the yoga mat uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, towards the bed. Uh, and you don't even think about going to sleep because that's obviously the most logical thing to do. Uh, but you want to do something else and then there is this balance. Uh -huh. uh, and it's not a bad motivation because Korean barbecue after midnight is bad. It's obviously bad. Uh, then you miss this. Uh, uh, it's it's not about balance. It's uh, about feeling the age. Uh -huh. uh, and I don't know how to get myself in this situation when uh, uh -huh. uh, there is a logical solution: uh -huh. go to bed. And uh -huh. uh, there is logical solution to beat yourself, sit yeah. down, and meditate. Yeah. And then. Uh, yeah. There is a crazy motivation, uh -huh. something what you want, 1 a.m. Korean barbecue. Yeah. It's a matrix uh, not in two dimensions, because right now you just described two-dimensional solutions, yes. and then uh, yeah. th there is more free. Uh, uh, I don't go beyond free. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, uh. the seduction of Korean barbecue. <laughs> this is about sense restraint which we'll be looking at this afternoon. Um, so I'll just say a couple of things and then hopefully both of these questions will continue to kind of explore them from different angles throughout the day. We need to develop a sensitivity towards um, towards our motivations to see what's, what's driving this action, what's driving this choice, and is that something that's going to ultimately be for my benefit in the long run? And it's not an intellectual process. It starts with intellectual reflection, but it has to actually be embodied. We actually have to investigate, how does it feel to eat Korean barbecue at one in the morning? to pay attention to it. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of pleasure when the food hits your mouth, but how does it feel afterwards? And how does it feel while you're sleeping? And how does it feel the next morning? And then to trace it back to see what was the energy of the motivation behind the action? How was I feeling? What was the quality in the heart and the mind and the body, right? Some pressure, some rushing, some hankering, um, some longing uh, uh, quality of um, uh, like a little bit like, ah, oh, I don't care, I don't want to deal with it, like that kind of dismissive energy in the mind. So to see what are the energies behind the choice, how do those feel? And then we see oh, what's the result of that. And then we see what are the energies behind other choices, you know, 
we have to we have to actually slow down a little bit the mind moves very quickly and if you're just thinking about the choice yeah, oh, I just have some food. It'll probably be fine. I'm hungry anyway. I don't know. I should probably meditate. No, I should meditate. I'm going to be. I should go have some food. The mind just doing that. It, there's no. There's actually isn't any place for the awareness to settle into the um, the different vectors that are driving the choice. So we need to actually slow down enough to bring what's called careful attention or deep attention to the process and feel. How does this feel? Where is this going? Is that something I want to follow? And how does this feel? Where is that going? Is that something I want to follow? That's going to be the, that's, that's the, the, the area where the learning starts to happen and the shift begins to occur, where, the, where our choices begin to bring more well-being rather than just repeating habits. Is that, is that enough for now? Yeah, right. Let's continue to explore it. The other thing I would want to say is um, um, there is effort required in meditation. So just when you say it's 97% effortless, um, depending on what technique you're using, I don't know what practice you're doing, but um, to keep learning about the meditation practice itself, as soon as we think we know how to do it, we're not learning. So see, as soon as we believe, I, I, I know, I have it figured out, we stop, we shut down the learning process. So, um, you know, for myself included, I'm always learning about how to meditate. I'm always trying to understand more what this is and, and, and how, it, how it works. And there is effort in meditation um, it's about having a balanced effort and learning how to apply effort. So to just begin, just to include that, I would encourage you to include that in your meditation. So yeah, great. I still haven't arrived to the point when I say it's one meditation. I use, use three. One is yoga nidra when you lie down and someone guides you. The other one is yeah. ziva meditation, which is sit down effortless. And the other one is tm, which is concentrating on breath. And they're all connected, leading to the same place mm-hmm. and <laughs> helping to make the choice, but I haven't learned to yeah. make the right choice, uh-huh. choice yet. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Your... You're welcome. So, um, so the next stage of the gradual training, once we hear the teachings and develop some confidence or aspiration, uh, is exploring the choices we make in life and uh, living ethically, bringing a quality of uh, sensitivity to our actions in life and this is this is a letting go this is a practice of letting go ethical conduct uh, and it's about how we live the buddha always referred to his teachings not just as the dhamma but as dhamma vinaya he said i teach dhamma vinaya and vinaya is the code of conduct for his disciples 
So the Dhamma is always paired with the Vinaya. It's always paired with, with how we live, uh, looking at the, the ac- our actions in the world uh, through our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. So uh, developing an understanding of ethical living and the specific, the specific guidelines of uh, the specific guidelines of, um, of the training in ethical conduct and the benefits of that is, is uh, a training that uh, accompanies us throughout the path. It's, uh, in some sense, it's, it's one of the foundations at the beginning and it's also a fruit at the end. The more uh, clear um, and uh, wise the heart is, the more naturally we make choices that don't cause harm for ourselves and others. <clears throat> so it's very important to um, understand the way th- this training in, in ethics is approached in Buddhist practice, and that's that it's voluntary. It's not, uh, it's not a commandment, it's not a should, it's not a, uh, a must, but it's voluntary. It's something that we take upon ourselves because we see the benefit, because we see how this supports our own happiness and well-being. So the, um, one of the phrases that's used uh, in the tradition is that it's a vehicle for happiness. It's a, a path of blessing and fulfillment. Ethical conduct is a path of fulfillment and blessing. The other, another way it's characterized is as a vehicle for Nibbana, a vehicle for awakening. It's something that takes us to awakening. That's pretty powerful. Following the precepts is a vehicle for awakening. And when we begin to examine um, how is it a vehicle for awakening? Well, okay, you look at the five precepts, which I'll talk a little bit more about, but just briefly, right? It's not killing, not stealing, not not lying um, or using harsh speech, um, not causing harm with our sexual energy, and uh, not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind. So you look at those five and you say, okay, what are the energies that drive me to do those things? To take things that don't belong to me, to speak harshly, to use my sexual energy in ways that are careless. What are, what are the kinds of forces in my mind? Generally greed, self-centeredness, confusion, anger, fear, right? What does it take to put those actions down? Well, I have to let go of greed, self-centeredness, anger, hatred, fear. So the process of cultivating ethical, ethical living is a process of letting go of those energies, of those motivations. So it's a vehicle to awakening because what gets abandoned, what's get, what gets put aside in order to live ethically are all of these things that, that create so much pain and difficulty in the world.
So the essence of ethical conduct is not causing harm. That's the essence. It can all be boiled down to just that one thing, not causing harm. Uh, this is characterized in two ways in the teachings. It's uh, called hiri otapa, are the two words in Pali, which translates um, to one of the translations is care and concern. So care and concern. And one aspect is about ourself and the other aspect is about others. So the concern is concern for the well-being of others. That we recognize that nobody likes to suffer. You know, no sent, sent, uh, sentient beings, any kind of creature that feels, doesn't want to experience pain. So out of concern for that, we say, well, I, I want to avoid causing harm. The other principle is a sense of care or conscience, and that's about oneself. There's a sense of deep caring and conscience for oneself, for our own well-being. We recognize, what's it like when I uh, do this? What's it like if I say something really nasty? How does that feel afterwards in my own mind or my own heart? Is that becoming of me? You know, there's just some sense of conscience that's like, uh, I'm better than that. Not in some moral superiority way, but in the sense of having dignity. We see that, you know, this isn't fitting of me. This isn't how I want to live my life. This, doesn't, this isn't what I want to kind of bring forward into the world. And it's not that we need to be perfect. We all make mistakes. That's not what it's about. It's just about recognizing, like, I have standards for myself, you know, I have standards for myself. And when I make a mistake, to recognize, hey, I let myself down there, you know. Not, not getting out the stick, I beat myself up, but actually valuing ourselves with a sense of like, you know, I'm better than that. I can do better than that. So these two qualities of conscience and concern are called the guardians of the world. That when these are present, they protect society. When they're absent, we see the results. So a little bit about a little bit about uh, about precepts. Um, so this sense of not causing harm, which then gets expressed as conscience and concern, then takes form in these five guidelines, these five mindfulness trainings. The Buddha basically offers a structure, says, listen, if you're interested in not suffering, if you're interested in, in being at peace in your life, here are the rules of the game. Here are the boundaries, you know? Stay within these boundaries if you want to play the game. And those boundaries are, don't take the life of other living creatures. Don't intentionally take the life of other living creatures. 
that restraining ourselves from, from killing counteracts the force of hatred in the mind. When you see a mosquito and you want to slap it, it's a very small moment of hatred. It's a very small moment of ill will to destroy a creature that we don't like. And that same energy of destruction we can see play out in other ways. Somebody says something we don't like and that energy of, of ill will comes forward. So it's exploring this, this reactivity in the mind to destroy that which we don't like. The, the, each precept also has a positive aspect. So the positive aspect is cultivating compassion, cultivating love, bringing, uh, bringing a, a quality of care and consideration to the way that we live. So not stealing, the way that it's phrased is, is more nuanced. It's not taking that which is not given. And this is a profound reflection, to not take that which is not given. What's actually offered to us in this life? What's actually offered? Is that mine to take? So to look at our use of resources, to say what's actually mine to take? And cultivate, uh, practicing with the pre this second precept around taking that which is not given counteracts the force of greed, the desire to hoard, to have more for myself, and to actually not care for the impact on others. And the, the positive cultivation is generosity, cultivating a heart of, of generosity, which is actually quite joyful to give when we look at it. How does it feel to let go? How does it feel to share? How does it feel to help out? That feels, that feels really good for human beings. The third precept is about um, not causing harm with our sexual energy. Uh, and I think, you know, I would imagine each of us knows the kind of harm that can be caused when we're careless with our sexual energy, you know whether we've experienced that harm ourselves or uh, created harm in another, intentionally or unintentionally, but just through not, be, not being careful with our actions, how painful that can be. So again, this counteracts the force of greed. And uh, it strengthens a certain kind of simplicity, not being entangled in our life. to take care with our sexual energy. And that doesn't just mean in terms of our actions, it means in terms of our words, in terms of our body language, how we look at one another, you know, to take care with this very powerful aspect of being human. There's nothing amoral about being sexual. As lay people, it's a part of our life. But, but to respect that energy because it's so powerful. Um, the fourth precept is about our speech, how we speak with one another and with ourselves internally. So it's about abstaining from speech that's, that's false, that's not true, or that bends the truth, speech that's harsh, speech that's divisive, 
that, that separates people, that pits one person or one group against another, or speech that's just a waste of energy, that just has no purpose whatsoever. And that doesn't just mean chit-chat. Chit-chat often serves a purpose. It's a purpose to connect, you know, to enjoy one another's presence. But sometimes we're just babbling, you know, just talking for no reason whatsoever, wasting our energy and time and wasting someone else's time and energy. So uh, taking care with our speech in this way cultivates a lot of really, really wholesome qualities. Truthfulness, patience, kindness. It's, uh, it's one of the things that the Buddha said is, the, is one of the highest blessings. Words well spoken is one of the highest blessings. It also says in the Dhammapada, better than a thousand useless words is one word which brings peace. So this is the, the potency of our speech. And again, our speech is not just external, it's internal. So to examine how do we speak to ourselves, and coming back to that sense of self-criticism, beating ourselves up. Can we bring truthfulness, honesty, gentleness, non-divisiveness to our internal speech? And the last, uh, the last training here is, uh, is around intoxicants. Uh, the way it's phrased is uh, drink and drugs which uh, cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. And the idea here uh, is that um, when we take intoxicants, we, uh, we're going in the opposite direction of everything else on the path, because the path is about clarity. It's about seeing clearly and understanding. And when we take intoxicants, we cloud the mind. We, we move away from seeing clearly. And then often what happens is we end up breaking one of the other precepts <laughs> because we're not thinking clearly. We lose discernment when the mind is clouded. And so different... Uh, so with each of these, it's an exploration. It's a training and an exploration to see what's the result of my actions. When I act in this way, what's the result? When I act in that way, what's the result? And different people hold like the precept around intoxicants differently. For me, that means I don't, I don't drink or do drugs at all. That's the way that I hold it, and that's what feels that's what feels the most supportive for me in my path. There are people who hold it as to not become intoxicated, so they might have a glass of wine or a beer, you know, with a meal or out with friends, but to but to abstain from becoming intoxicated, right? And then, you know, for some people that's not possible if they have one drink and then they'll have two drinks or three drinks. So it, again, it's that sense of the exploration in oneself to see what is supportive of my well-being, what is supportive of clarity. And the, the phrase that's used, again, in the, in the text is um, that these are trainings, these are steps of training and learning. So it's not, that, it's not to beat ourselves up, you know, if we say something harsh, if we get angry at someone and speak in a, in, in a way that's you know not in line with our intention, it's a learning to see, okay, how do I learn from that? 
What do I need to do differently next time? Where do I need to work on this? Yeah. So um, is there a perspective on clarity enhancing psychedelics? Again, it's a, it's a training and an investigation for each person, I think. Um, I, one, I think one needs to look at, number one, what's the motivation? You know, our motivations are often not singular, they're often mixed. So there can be an aspect of the motivation that is kind of a pure desire for exploration and, and expanding the mind and opening to new possibilities. And there's often also an a motivation that's a, about craving and seeking thrill and excitement and different experience. So to be honest, to be real with oneself about one's motivations, to look at the effects, look at the effects of those actions. What's, the, what's, what's, what's of benefit? What's not of benefit? I think one of the, one of the things about psychedelics um, or plant medicine and different, different aspects of uh, um, using substances, um, my understanding is that none of those offer a path. They can, they can provide experiences that may open a certain door or reveal something, um, but there's still work to be done to integrate that training, to, to integrate that. And so there's, there's a need for a path and for a practice and for a training that can be sustained over time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Dan. Yeah. So, what, you know, in my own experiences, I've, I've found there's things that are easy to let go of, mm -hmm. and there are things that are not so easy to let go of. Mm-hmm. There's a, a deeper habit. Mm-hmm. What, you know, how do you work with those? Mm. Yeah, deeper habits that are not so easy to let go of. The, um, on one level, that's what this whole path is about. It's about letting go of deep habits in the mind. The deepest habit of all being the sense of, uh, uh, ignorance. Not, not seeing or ignoring reality. Reality of change. Reality of, um, our lack of control, and the reality of uh, the stressfulness of being alive. The, the analogy that's used in the early texts, or one of the analogies, is it's like a ship that's moored at a dock and the ropes of the uh, um, I'm not a seafaring person so I don't know the right words but the ropes that tie the ship to the dock uh, over time in the rain and the storms and the sunshine those, those mooring ropes slowly wear away slowly wear away until one day the rope itself breaks and just disintegrates. 
So that's so again this analogy of something gradually developing over time and with the defilements and these deep patterns it's a gradual wearing away one moment at a time just a gradual wearing away so the factors that wear that away over time are things like um, patience the buddha said kanti parami uh, kanti paramang tapo titika which means patience is the supreme it's a play on words patience is the highest virtue but patience is the supreme austerity, the highest renunciation, pa patience. So patience helps, um, kindness helps, and, and then mindfulness, seeing clearly. So bringing awareness to a habit, every time we see it clearly, it, starts, it weakens the identification with it. And restraint is very important. We'll talk about restraint uh, after lunch, but um, that ability to uh, gather the mind's energy inwards to, re to refrain from having Korean barbecue, even when we really want to. <laughs> that ability to gather the mind's energy and keep it from rushing out. So all of these qualities we bring to, to, to deep habits and investigate to really investigate and see what are the results of my actions? What are the results of these habits? How does this feel? That's part of the training and precepts is to trace the, the arc of a motivation, a choice, and, uh, and then the results and to keep paying attention to that arc in our life. That's where the learning happens. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, sobriety and clarity, clear seeing. Love. Love. Using sexual energy as an expression of love rather than greed or manipulation. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just limited to sexual energy, but it's it's that it's that cultivation of love. Yeah. yeah, at least that's my understanding of it. Yeah. So um, along these lines, I wanted to um, to just invite a reflection. So one of the um, So actually, actually observing these trainings is not easy. It can sound simple, but as anyone who knows who really, when we really practice with them, particularly things like speech, or being refined, or bringing a refinement to to the precepts around uh, sexual energy or um, taking that which is not given, uh, it's work. It takes a it takes a lot to really follow and practice these precepts. Um, that's why they're trainings and they're spiritual undertakings. These are, these are, these are spiritual trainings um, to be able to actually overcome the force of our habits, 
the force of greed, the force of ill will, the force of confusion in our mind. So part of that is, as, as I was saying with Dan, is, is being able to learn from our mistakes and bringing a spirit of, uh, of care, bringing a spirit of gentleness to ourself when we, uh, when we lose the plot. You know, when we fall short of our expectations of ourself or when we don't hold up our commitments. So again, in the early texts, the Buddha said, uh, this is progress. He said, making mistakes is what I call progress. Because how do we learn? How else do we learn? And he identified three aspects of learning from our mistakes in order for it to be progress. He said, first, we actually have to acknowledge that we screwed up. <laughs> there actually has to be that humility to recognize inside oneself to go, you know, I kind of lost it there. Whether it's with someone else or with ourself, you know? So if we do something, one of the things we've been talking about is making choices in our lives that on some level we know it's like, you know, it's not gonna be good. <laughs> been there before, but we still do it. You know what that's called? That's called delusion. <laughs> that's the force of delusion. There's an aspect of our mind that still isn't seeing clearly what's for our best benefit. So there's an aspect of humility and acknowledging and recognizing in stopping and taking stock at whatever point we are able to and go, okay, that wasn't helpful. I, I see that. And part of that means really tasting, tasting the results of our actions allowing ourselves to experience the results because that's where the learning happens is that's the feedback that we get and we need to we need to create the space to actually feel it or we don't learn from it so usually our response to the results of our actions um, positive and negative is to push them away so, you know, um, these days that, let's see if this is true before I say it. <laughs> I think this is pretty true. I, um, you know, I'll, I'll say something that's harsh every now and then if I, get, uh, if I get upset and there's not enough restraint or presence. But these days, you know, when, when, I, when I kind of do something that's not helpful, usually it's, um, staying up and watching something like too late, you know, and then just feeling really tired the next day, you know, because like I'll watch one more Colbert or whatever it is, right, on the on the YouTube or something. So, um, so the tendency in the mind is to push away the unpleasantness of the results of those actions. It's okay, I just, just keep going. Just, oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that last night. But we don't want to experience that feeling inside of like the regret or the remorse 
or the resulting layers of self-recrimination or the physical results in the body of having not slept enough or having eaten too much or whatever it is. We push it away. And in doing so, we shut down the possibility of learning because we're closing off the feedback mechanism. So to slow down enough to actually feel the results of our actions. And what's interesting is we often do the same with our wholesome actions. We do something really generous, really kind for somebody. We really show up. We really go the extra mile at work and do a really good job on a project. How much do we slow down and stop to appreciate, God, that felt really good, you know? Like, I really rocked out (laughs) on that project, you know? Or like, hey, I really came through for that person. We don't let ourselves actually appreciate and enjoy the benefits of our wholesome actions. And again, in doing so, we shut down the possibility of learning. We're not opening ourselves up to the feedback. So the Buddha says this is progress. The first step is acknowledging the results of our actions. And when, it's, when we've made a mistake, it's acknowledging like, okay, that wasn't good. The second aspect is making amends. Making amends, repairing what's been broken. So if that's with someone else, it means coming clean and saying, you know, I'm sorry. I lost it. That wasn't my intention. Or if it was my intention, I I really regret it. I can see how that, you know, that wasn't cool. And I'm really sorry about that. If it's with ourselves, again, making, repairing it, acknowledging it, making amends. And this is where that aspect of, of uh, hiri otapa, conscience and concern, that first aspect of conscience, how we relate to ourself, comes in. So when we, when we do something that's uh, not for our well-being, to develop, to de- use it to deepen our relationship with ourself, to say, hey, I'm sorry. I let myself down there. You know, that wasn't, that's not where I want to come from. I'd really like to be able to do better. I want to live, I want to live in a different way. And then that that brings us to the third aspect, which is about setting an intention to do it differently. About actually saying, okay, going forward, I'm, I'm resolving to do this differently. And actually using some creativity to figure out how to say, here's what I can do differently instead. I'll call a friend. I'll take a break. I'll wait five minutes and then make the decision, whatever it is. But, but using your ingenuity to come up with other, other ways of, of, uh, of being. <clears throat> Over time... This relationship with living ethically uh, builds up a certain kind of um, momentum internally. And it's a momentum of integrity. And that becomes a protection for ourselves. We become protected against ourselves. So somebody asked, um, 
Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, uh, you know, what um, what are these precepts for this protection? What is it a protection against? And he said, yourself, of course. <laughs> so it's that sense of protecting ourselves against our own bad habits, against our own impulses towards self-centeredness, towards reactivity, towards confusion, towards self-judgment. And that integrity doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we're, we're a saint. Maybe, hopefully, eventually. It means, that, it means that there's an integrity in our intention. There's a strength in the intentionality with which we're living. So that even when we lose it, we come back. There's a, there's a strength in the, uh, the discipline of making effort. So the, quest, the question came up earlier around, well, what about forcing myself to meditate when I really don't want to? One of the positive results of that is this sense of integrity, of discipline, that that, that lifts the mind up. You see, what's the result of being like, ah, I'll meditate tomorrow. Ah, I'll meditate another time. How's that feel later? How's it feel when you say, you know, I really don't want to, but I'm going to. But I'm going to anyway. How does that feel? Something, 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 something lifts inside. There's a strength to that, a strength of integrity that we're following through on our intentions and on our values. So this, this is, these are the benefits of keeping precepts. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we build up a sense of integrity and strength and discipline inside. And that becomes a resource. It becomes a protection. One of the ways this is characterized in the suttas is the bliss, you ready for this? The bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness. Bliss is a strong word. Um, so I like to make things accessible. <laughs> Part of that is just, it's the absence of remorse and regret. The absence of remorse and regret. How does it feel to not have regret? This is something that we need to actually develop a taste for. So I'd like to um, end our, our, our morning session with a, with a short reflection on this, on precepts, and on the results of our actions as a way of developing an appreciation for um, for ethical integrity in, in a felt sense way. So um, uh, this will be, I know we've been sitting for a little while, this won't be too long, so if, uh, if you want to just shift your posture or sit comfortably, stretch out your legs for a sec if you need to. <coughs> First, just take a few moments to settle your, settle your attention, feeling the body sitting, 
coming back to this simplicity of being. Just that sense of ease in sitting here. There's nothing you need to make happen. That we can just rest with the sensations of sitting or breathing. So I'm going to invite you to think about a couple things related to our actions. And first I want to invite you to call to mind something that you did or said uh, that wasn't in line with your intentions. Maybe that caused some harm for someone else. Don't choose the most painful thing you've done in your life, please. You know, you said something a little bit harsh, or you dropped the ball on something. You let someone down a little bit. Maybe a few things come to mind. Just choose one. Doesn't need to be the perfect scenario, but let it be really clear and specific. Something you said or did that wasn't in line with your intentions for how you want to live. Maybe had some negative effect on somebody in your life. So now keeping in mind this aspect of receiving the feedback mechanism, of really feeling what it feels like, put your attention on that other person and the impact that that action had on them. This isn't about beating yourself up. To just, it doesn't feel good. There's some sense of like, oh, mm, I'm sorry this quality of remorse or regret or some aspect of how does it feel to see the impact this action had on the other person. It's not comfortable, but watch the tendency to move into self-judgment. See if you can just touch into the discomfort. There's a little bit of an aspect of helplessness. We can't change what happened and that's uncomfortable. Just breathe with it. Feeling your body sitting, staying grounded. It'll be okay. (laughs) But just seeing the impact and feeling the reverberations inside. This is what I call progress. Acknowledging a mistake, making amends, setting an intention to do it differently. 
That's how we learn. Okay. So go ahead and let that situation fade into the background. And now I want you to bring to mind someone else in your life where things have been going smoothly. A friend, a colleague, someone you've got a good connection with and you haven't done or said anything particularly difficult. All's well. Again, make it very specific. I want you to think of somebody where there's a feeling of ease between the two of you. Nothing to regret. And so notice the quality in that relationship. In particular, bring your attention to the absence of regret. See if you can notice the absence of that feeling of discomfort and remorse. The heart is free from regret and remorse. That's the bliss of blamelessness. That's the result of having not caused harm. And once again, letting that situation fade and dissolve. Bringing your attention back to just feeling your body sitting and breathing. big aspect of this path is noticing the absence of certain things. So um, I'm thinking let's take a, a break for lunch here. Just a couple of announcements first. Um, I know there are a couple people who will, will be needing to leave early. Uh, so if, uh, if you don't come back after lunch because you need to leave, thank you so much for, uh, for coming. And uh, if, you d if you need to leave partway through the afternoon, that's fine also. But um, since some folks are leaving early, I, did, I wanted to mention uh, two things. One, um, I have an email list that's on the back table there. So 
if you want to stay in touch and just hear about things I'm doing, uh, writing, uh, when I come back to the East Coast, uh, just jot your email address down. I, I send out one email about every month or two, so it's not a lot. Uh, and then also I'm going to be leading a retreat uh, not far from here in New Jersey uh, right after Thanksgiving. It's a, a four, four days residential retreat. Um, and so there's uh, some of these yellow flyers over there. So if you'd like to practice together and do a retreat, you can pick up one of those. And uh, I, I also run an online course that's focused on bringing, the me bringing meditation and the teachings into daily life. So uh, uh, feel free to, to pick up one of those and check it out. So um, let's take an hour for lunch. It's uh, 12.50, so let's come back at 10 to 1. And uh, we can talk about this reflection when we come back. 10 to 2. Thank you, 10 Thanks. to 2. And before you go, I'd like to make a few announcements, too, about lunch. Um, so if you brought your lunch with you, you're more than welcome to eat here. Just be sure to clean up after yourselves and make sure the space is, is as clean as possible. Um, and also about the hot water filter, it seems like we've run out of hot water for the time being, but the tank is slowly refilling. Um, and also, if you, have, if you came in late and did not check in, please come see me after this. Um, and one last thing, uh, Donna, uh, which means generosity in Pali. Um, I invite you all to offer generosity uh, through donations to Oren, who uh, graciously came here to teach and be here with us today. Um, the registration fees go towards um, the operations and facilities of maintaining this space, and all, the do all of the donations go to our teacher here, and um, I invite you to practice generosity and offer whatever you can. The starting suggested donation is $30, but we don't turn anyone, anyone away for lack of funds, so uh, please do so and help support his livelihood. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.